whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, the last best place or legends of the fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. Welcome to Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we got two books we're going to talk about this episode. Uh, Elise Atchison's first novel, Crazy Mountain, which won the Eludia Award. Losing her brother so early had been hard, but until now, the hardest loss had been their daughter. She was only 14 years old the day she died. Even at that young age, she had already decided she wanted to stay on the ranch. She had already picked the spot where she wanted her house to be built someday, a secluded aspen grove a mile up the road where a clear creek trickled year round and spring flowers bloomed lavishly across the hillsides. Their daughter chose that spot because she loved the bony beauty of the aspens. She loved the brilliant bluebirds that landed like sapphires on the slender gray branches. She even loved the constant wind and sculpted snowdrifts that settled deep and heavy in that canyon. They planned to pass on their entire 23,000-acre ranch to her and her future family when the time was right, but that time never had a chance to come. Now there was only Frank left, and after he was gone, there would be no one, no one at all. The next morning, Frank didn't respond to Mary's voice or even to the gentle touch of her hand. She was all too familiar with death, and she knew what was coming. Sometimes death swallowed its prey in one quick, ferocious gulp, like their daughter, but other times it took longer. And with Frank, death was slowly working up its appetite, nibbling around the edges, taking its own grim time to devour the center. It took two weeks for Frank to finish dying. She kept reaching out to him and touching him to make sure he was still there. And in that awful way, she watched his life evaporate like the gradual drying up of a once vibrant spring creek. After he took his last breath and there was nothing left but the body, she undressed him and wrapped him in a cotton sheet trying not to focus on the miles of empty space surrounding her now that Frank was gone. And Panama by Thomas McLean from 1978. So this is a little bit of a departure from our usual uh, format because we usually talk about one book by an author who's still uh, with us and one by someone who's passed. But in this case... Tom McGuane, uh, we asked him to do an interview a few years ago, and he agreed to do it. And COVID I think, happened. Yeah, COVID happened, and I think also I was just kind of intimidated. <laughs> you know, I was scared to ask him again. But the last time we did, he finally just said, you know, I'm not really interested in doing any more interviews. So we're talking about a guy who's still alive. Um, anyway... Who I got to sign my book. Oh, he signed this? Very cool. Book Awards in 2019. Yeah. So it was fun to read an old McGuane. It's been a while since I read one of his older 
books and it's just interesting how much his style has changed yeah uh at least wanted us to do crow fair yes and we weren't really excited about doing that so we pulled rank and yeah let's do panama yeah and i'm glad i i'm glad we did because i really liked this book and it was fun to uh sort of look at what his style was like in the early days as compared to now when where he's he's just he's just become a much more serious writer but um I saw so many parallels between this and, like, Tom Robbins. Yeah, you know, my thought in reading it was, I, I, I'm sorry we didn't get to interview him because I would love to know the timeline of when he was hanging out with Browdigan down yeah. in the Paradise Valley because I, I see a lot of Browdigan in it, too. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not poetry, but a lot of Browdigan's poems are use the same kind of metaphor and twisty language. Yeah. And also, I thought, you know, it's contemporary with DeLillo and Thomas Pynchon. Uh-huh. And I definitely thought it could be categorized with those, too. Crying of Lot 49 or mm. End Zone. White or Noise. Yeah, White Noise. And, of course, one of the things that really sticks out besides... His, I mean, he's just a master of language. But he's also so damn funny. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of funny parts in it. I guess when you say it's not serious literature, like that's kind of what I think too. Is it's it's like pothead literature. <laughs> like it's really hilarious when you're stoned reading it. <laughs> and I wonder if you know it, it. He makes it sound like there was a lot of cocaine involved. Well, and yeah, I'm sure there's there's uh, plenty of uh, evidence to support the fact that there was. A lot of that going on, not only in Key West, but in Paradise Valley at that time. But Which, it definitely rides the the razor blade between being serious, you know, high literature and just being zany. Like yeah. Tom Robbins is a good, I think that's a good. Yeah, no, that's exactly what impressed me about it. I mean, it, it almost felt like he was teetering himself, you know, as a writer. Like, there's, there's a lot of places in this book where it, it just feels like he's not quite in control um, and but also there's a lot of poignant moments in it oh for sure and uh you know i ended up marking all these passages that are really like little aphorisms buried mm. in there like i want to read a couple yeah i considered the wonder of the things that befell me convinced that my life was the best omelet you could make with a chainsaw <laughs> which is funny but it's you know also Kind of an interesting way to, yeah, to put it. So, you know, Browdigan or Tom Robbins, and then a little further down, he says, "I was transfixed. All my general views gone. Everything withering to make room for the present. The furious rifle vision which riddles everything. That madhouse of what seemed like a good idea at the time." Mm-hmm. So I just thought those were great and I and so back to the drug issue he says she was often stern with me she said I used those old drugs too much but given the objective conditions of our lives how can we avoid taking the drugs it's our only defense against information which made me think of uh, DeLillo I mean that's kind of mm. the theme with him too so he, in this section he is I forget what he's taken I can't remember if it's the big cocaine ball that he snorted or some other drug, but he says, 
years of touring has given me this predilection. For instance, I perceived in the Russian tongue the history of the manufacture of galoshes. <laughs> in the Spanish language, I perceived the history of a lack of rain. Mm. I perceived in the French tongue the history of no underpants and an, ex- and an excess of utensils, <laughs> both shaving and cooking. What, who knows what's in American? Farting, whistling Dixie, I don't know. <laughs> and, you know, you can mark one of these on every page. Yeah. Like you said, he's, this is in Key West, and it says, At the end of the street, the ocean will roll toward you, hauling its thousand miles with a phosphorescent pole. I note an odd detail here and there, but my old man would be the one to spot the banker's wife staring in an upstairs mirror, waiting for the scream to start in the shag carpet. Oh, man. Drunk enough, he would turn his head between his upraised shoulders and look for the next instance of the disease. Something crooked, the smell of a child's run-over puppy hidden in the garbage, beginning to turn in the heat. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's, it's pretty rich. Yeah, I mean, Language. basically, he has his own voice, and, you know, it, it comes through loud and clear. Um, and I also noticed, you know, one of the things that was interesting to me about this book, considering that the narrator is a, is struggling with drugs, is that every time the story kind of gets to a point where some kind of emotional connection might happen there's such a sudden abrupt shift you know which is so consistent with an addict uh an addict's viewpoint or the way they live their lives i should say you know so i like that about it like it's it's consistent with that kind of lifestyle like oh this is too this is too close (laughs) this is too i'm feeling something (laughs) so um even the dialogue, like, there would just be these sudden shifts. Yeah, the dialogue is pretty hard to follow until you get used to it. But that's true of DeLillo, I think, and mm-hmm. a lot of Thomas Pynchon, you know. there's, It's like what's on the page is at a different level from what the characters are actually talking about. And then yes. you, you think about it and you, you're like, well, you know, that's how most conversations go, that you overhear, yeah. you know, people talk in these gnomic utterances that only they understand... Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is gesture, which you can't really put on the page. So I think he's a master of conveying that just surreal yeah. quality to communication. Yeah, it, it reminded me actually of, of uh, Robert Altman, too. Right, exactly. His movies are so much like that. With you know, Too bad Altman's dead, because it would be great to have him make a movie out of Panama or 92 in the Shade. Yeah, I wonder why he never did make a... It seems like they it would It seems like it would have been a perfect fit. Perfect, yeah. He did Carver instead. Did you ever see that movie? Oh, yeah, Shortcuts. That was a great great, movie. movie. So to kind of segue into Elise's book from the the sort of shifting narrative, so this is one of the things that's interesting about Crazy Mountain is that um, every single chapter is told from a different point of view. Um, And I haven't read very many books that where that's the case, where, you know, usually there's a, when there's multiple narrators, you revisit some of them over and over again. But this one is completely different character for each chapter. And when we were talking to her, I think we mentioned both the visit from the Goon Squad yeah. and uh, you know Sound of the Fury. There's, I agree. There's a lot of books that take multiple viewpoints, but um, quite often it's either it 
does them in succession and repeats yeah. viewpoints or um, I don't know Faulkner's Sound and Fury is pretty hard to compare to anything but yeah. even that has at the end the chapter with the omniscient narrator right um, and as I lay dying is definitely multiple viewpoints but they repeat mm, yeah that's one of my favorites actually um, so the thing that was that I thought was impressive about it was that she did manage to tell a story through that um, structure. And part of the way that she managed to accomplish that was to have a, sort of a through, through line with this one character named Kate, who um, sort of appears on the periphery of almost every single story, not all of them, but... Who has a pretty tragic beginning. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of mystery about what her deal is throughout the book, too, so... You know, one other thing, since you brought it up, I think is impressive about this book is that a lot of a lot of books that do that have these multiple points of view. It really ends up being a novel sort of cobbled together out of short stories, right? Um, which is also cool, but yeah, this definitely felt like a novel. It did, yeah. Not a collection of short stories, even though she said she'd published some of these chapters on their own and yeah. And I think places. she started out just writing a stories that, and, and I was surprised she said how long she'd been working on it. Yeah, ten, ten years, years at yeah. Least, yeah, yeah. You can kind of see how it probably st- how she said it started out as you know I, I was working on these stories and somehow realized they were all connected. But what would you say is the the theme? <clears throat> I, mean, I think you mentioned earlier it was well. Obviously, I think it, it's clearly a story of the battle between um, you know people that are trying to uh, restore certain. Scenic parts, scenic parts of the country, and those that are happy to exploit them. So, for developers versus the yeah, basically environmentalists. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's she says it's a fictional region, but it's pretty clearly um, similar to Par- Paradise Valley. Although I was pleased to hear her say that she wasn't thinking about that fire at all. Yeah, that was interesting. That, yeah, we just chapter. assumed she was talking about the Pine Creek fire, but no. But it definitely had a feel of, you know, Livingston, Paradise Valley. Yes. Maybe even a little Bozeman in there. Definitely, yeah. And the fire was a great scene. Um, you know, I thought she did a really nice job of using that scene to show how differently people respond to a situation. I don't, we don't want to give too much away, but uh, it showed a lot about each character, what they were, what their priorities were when their property was in, in danger, and other people's properties. So. And I feel like also we should mention how difficult I think it is to write different characters, and how convincing she made even what might be a bad guy, you know, the yeah. developer guy, right, Craig. Right, I forget the exact scene, but there's somewhere where he's he like stops to help a wounded animal or mm. something. I can't remember what it is. But, you know, even though he's moved here from out of state and has this vision of turning Bozeman into Vale or whatever, um, you know, there's a three-dimensionality to him that he actually cares about. Like, he gets mad that people are hunting on his land. That's what it is. Mm. And at first you think it's because he doesn't want them trespassing, but then you realize it's because he doesn't want the animals getting mm. killed. Yeah, no. The she was she did a nice job of making the characters complex, not not uh, cliches. Another example I thought was was the uh, older couple, who is another sort of recurring theme throughout. Um, 
there on the I can't think of their names, but um, they have the daughter named Juniper. I guess the mother's Mary. Yeah, so the um, hippie couple. Yeah, they're, they're woodcutters. Right, and Juniper comes back after they're dead, and she's like, obviously, gone on to do something completely different with her life been very successful at it and she sort of looks at her parents as I don't know if failure is the right word but like their lives were small and sort of insignificant or something and she meets these people that are like oh my god your parents were such important parts of my life and that was a really cool scene I thought that whole sequence there right and how it connected to Kate too yeah right exactly yeah So we're here with Elise Atchison, the author of a, her very first novel, right? Yes. Crazy Mountain. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. So why don't you tell us first a little bit about the Eludia Award? So that's an award for um, first books of fiction for women over 40. Mm, um, okay. So, and I am over 40 <laughs> a little bit. So, uh, so I just decided to apply to it. I really didn't know much about it when I applied to it, but it seemed like a, it fit the bill. Yeah. And so uh, it's a small arts organization in, in Pennsylvania that just is trying to get books out into okay. the public. Huh. Um, is it connected to your press? The How do you say that? So Willow? So Willow? So Willow is part of Hidden River Arts, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's also in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. So when did you find out about when? It was before the, I found out right before the pandemic hit. And so we made a mutual decision to just hold off, Mm. you know, until the pandemic was over because, well, it's not over, (laughs) uh, but we decided to wait so that, you know, I could have events and, and whatnot. Sure. So have you been doing a lot of events? Well, I've been doing some, but I actually have a deadline on a book for the um, Montana Arts Council grant. So I'm kind of buckling down on that and not doing a lot of traveling until I get through that deadline. Tell um, us about that. What is that another novel? It's my second novel. Yeah. And um, I, I would, I'm really honored to have received a Montana Arts Council um, grant to, to help fund finishing the novel. And um, so I'm working on that right now and I'm on a deadline, which has me a little bit just buckling down and trying to meet the deadline. So that means I have to put some of these travel events on hold until after that. I'm just really intrigued about, this is a complicated book and how long have you been working on it? Well, you know, I started it quite some time ago, but it's kind of been set aside a number of times, you know, life gets in the way and yeah, you just, so, so I haven't like been working on it solid since I started it. It's set aside. I've, I've worked on other projects and I work, I work for myself also. So, you know, paying jobs always come first but to pay the bills. But it's, I did have time to to rewrite it. And, and, and there were certain characters that really took me a while to get thoroughly developed. And I don't know, maybe I didn't even get them thoroughly developed, but I tried. Um, so like, what's an example? Or when did you start it? I probably started it a good 10 years ago, but I, it's not like I've been working on it straight. Sure. Time. I mean, it's it's been set aside a, a number of times getting frustrated with part of it or or whatever or been through other people's illnesses and um caretaking and you know all you know life gets in the way sure um i guess what i'm trying to get at is where did the idea come from and did you like start writing these stories and then realize oh i could turn this into a novel or did you 
You know, you hit it right on the nose. I was I was writing a, a few characters just, you know, I just tend to write. I don't usually have a big idea or something. And I was just writing a few characters and I realized they were all within this time period where um where the land was changing and this, you know, the place was changing and the development, rapid development was happening and it was affecting all the characters. And I thought, well, you know, I just got this idea. Well, wouldn't it be interesting to try to write about this time period from many different points of view and try to get um, many different points of view on on what's happening to the to the landscape. And so I thought, you know, being rather naive, I thought that wouldn't be that big a deal. Mm, right. <laughs> but actually trying to do that was quite a quite ambitious for a first novel, I guess. Yeah, I can only think of one other novel I've ever read where every single chapter is a different from the point Which of view of a of? Um, Welcome to the Goon Squad. Oh, yeah. that You know, there's also, I, I would say, now that's kind of a more loose rendition of that. Um, Tom Rockman's The Imperfectionist uh, is kind of almost exactly like this, but it's about a newspaper that goes from the print newspaper that's going through the transition when they when when it turns over to digital and how that affects all the people who are involved in the newspaper and then there's also there there by tommy orange which takes us through all these different characters that come together at the end at the um powwow is every single character chapter a different point of view in that one though i don't, so know. I don't remember if he went back do you remember i can't remember yeah, if he so went. there um i think maybe what russell's getting at is there's lots of novels i can think of where there's chapters uh, are from a different point of view, but in this case, it's each chapter is a different point of view. Yeah, right. So, like in there, there, it you know, it gives us the perspective of one character a couple of different times. Yeah, it goes. And back same with the... visit from the goon squad. No, that no, one's that's, different. Yeah, that one's different for each chapter. I it was I, it was the first time I'd ever seen that, so that's why I remember it so vividly. Oh, it, maybe I. Oh no, I'm right this time. <laughs> I believe you. I just I've it caught that book. A lot. A There's like um it's called a not some people call it a novel in stories. But did you, did you mention you mentioned one example earlier too? Oh, Charles. there was a great collection I want to say by Charles Baxter called I Want You to Do Something for Me. Mm. And and it's I want to say 12 or 13 stories that um our interconnecting characters, but what's really cool about each story is at some point in the story, one of the characters says, I want you to do something for me. Oh. <laughs> you, you know, Laura Pritchard did this also in um, Blue Hour, I think it's called, Blue mm -hmm. Hour. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then Sound and the Fury. I mean, that's- Oh yeah. Four points of view. Right. One of the things second. that's interesting is it's not only different characters in your book, but different times. Yeah, it moves through time as it gets. Yeah. So one of the things that's important about when you have a story like that is you have to have something that ties it all together. And I thought you did that nicely, especially by bringing Kate in as sort of a through line plot with her story. She appears um, in different time time frames, but also uh, she's just this intriguing presence throughout the book. So how did you come up with that character? No, it's interesting because in the first drafts, she was no import more important than any of the other. Oh, characters. okay. And then I, I was looking at how the book tied together and her and her brother are there in the very first chapter. Yes. And they're there all the way to the end. And they're the only characters that are there through that. Mm. So I probably did develop her more as time went on yeah. and made her. Um, and, and, you know, I don't think about these themes when I'm writing, but 
she kind of plays the role of um the people who treat her really poorly yeah treat the land really poorly uh, the people who treat her really well treat the land well and i wasn't that i was thinking about that when i was writing it but you know that is kind of the way i see people or sometimes are you know the vulnerable people some sometimes pe people just um treat them really poorly and they also don't care about other species or or the natural world and then other people they care about things outside themselves they care about they they believe that other people as well as species have have rights and have or have intrinsic worth yeah um so i i thought you really brought that to fruition nicely with the scene where juniper comes home and her she's she's thinking all these negative thoughts about her parents but then she finds out that these other people really adored them because of the way they treated them uh, that was a good example of that and also i really like that chapter a lot also and she wasn't a major character but um that chapter hit me pretty hard especially when she grabs or she picks up her mom's coat or i mean that was just really evocative um and i also since you you mentioned it you know how people treat the land i thought that one of the more interesting characters was the the guy from la who you know you want to dislike him because he's a city guy comes up and buys all this land but he really does have a sensitivity to the animals and in a weird way he does have reverence for the land uh well i mean he, both he and his wife you know his wife yeah. they went through a tragedy of course which brought a lot of tragedy in this book yeah yeah there's a lot there's also a lot of good things i mean you, yeah you, you know i try to i really try to take each character and get inside them and what drove them to be who they are i you right. know i don't know if i accomplished that with each character but i certainly tried to and and as well as with it with craig and you know people do move in sometimes with a lot of money and they they don't necessarily i mean it's kind of an easy buy into a lifestyle rather than an earned <laughs> an earned lifestyle and so but i did want to get that point of view in there of, of, of a very wealthy. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking of, I'm contrasting him with Heidi, you know, who's just a really yeah. repellent. Uh, uh oh, I didn't want anybody to be totally repellent. <laughs> uh, well, maybe that's my, you know, local bias coming through. <laughs> not that she was a totally irredeemable character, but, you know, she just was totally entitled yeah. and like right. uh, Mostly Earl Streep and that uh, Devil Wears Prada kind of woman. You know? <laughs> So I thought it was a nice contrast, the guy from L.A. who at first blush seems like he's like her, but then really there's more to, to him. Yeah. Well, the end of that, which I probably shouldn't say, but he he feels really horrible about what he eventually does. to the Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. And and yet you live if you live on the land, it's it's complex and it's contradictory. And you're going to well, just in life in general, you know, you're going to sometimes do things that you really didn't mean you know you caught you may cause harm in ways that you really didn't want to and one of the things that you're kind of getting at here is trying to make each character fully formed and that's one of the strengths of the book because because each chapter just focuses entirely on one character so they're basically short stories that are connected and i don't know about you guys but i find short stories <laughs> really hard to do well because you do have to fully flesh out it, the main character in every story. So I thought that was an impressive accomplishment. Thank you. Yeah. And, and you know, that's interesting because speaking of Heidi, 
she doesn't get a chapter. So we actually never really, if oh, I were I didn't to even written, notice that. she was a character yeah. in someone else's. So you're seeing her through the other character. And right. if I were to give her a chapter, I probably would have developed how she became who she was. Mm, yeah. mm -hmm. Sure. Um, can I follow up on that yeah. and ask about, um, I, I think I remember reading in the credits that you did publish some of these as short stories. Is that true? Yeah. In fact, the one, the one you were mentioning um, with Juniper, that one yeah. um, was a finalist in the terrain, one of the terrain contests, and they published it, and then oh, nice. some other small, small uh, literary journals. So how long have you been writing? You know, I've been writing my whole life, but I didn't focus on publishing. I've published short works probably in my late 20s. I'm a person who worked full time through most of my yeah. life. And the, um, and then had all these other things we were built, you know, we built a house. And then if I have time off, I go into the wilderness, you know, most of my life. So you really have to have time, I think, to write a book. It takes time. <laughs> and and I just I think when you're, you know, like when I was 20 or 21, I thought about getting an MFA. But when you're working at a low paying job and you're trying to pay your bills and the idea of going that far in debt is just for a degree that, you know, and I also thought, you know, if I'm going to take that time, why not just write for that period of time? Mm -hmm. You know, if exactly. I'm all that money. Yeah. But, so you don't have an MFA. No, I don't have an MFA. I actually think at this point in my life, I'm glad that I just lived my life. And now I'm, I have, uh, it's kind of like, um, I have a lot of experiences, you know, that I can draw on like a soil that your imagination can grow out of, you know. Listeners, listeners would probably want to know, like, what's your story? Where are you from? Are you from Montana? Did you live in this area? And where does this take place? I couldn't quite pin it down. It's an imaginary place. Okay. There are different ways to write fiction. You can write autobiographical fiction, where you're writing really drawing from your own life, or you can write biographical, where you're drawing from other people's lives, or you can write more imaginary, where, you know, when you're writing it, the characters and the story are growing out of each other and just kind of evolving that way and that's more the way I write so it's not a specific place and that's intentional because when I write I'd like to have um the freedom to develop the story and the characters in any way I want but is it so we were yeah. discussing some of the um major events were similar to events that have happened here yeah. that's true <laughs> yeah I did I mean so I didn't feel have... I didn't feel any problem drawing yeah right things in. gotcha but it didn't have to be in a in a in an absolutely factual way. Yeah, right. Gotcha. Oh, yeah, I didn't mean that. I what happens in this book really could be happening in almost any small town across the West. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Sure, sure. So even though I titled it Crazy Mountains, I mean, technically, the crazies are the crazy mountains. Yeah. And there's right. crazy thing. There's not actually a crazy mountain. Right, um, right. Technically. But I liked the name. I liked the um, the legend behind it, which I did draw in too, but I, I extrapolated on it. And the... And the I don't want to spoil the ending, but the fire, you know, made me think of the what fire? Uh, the Pine Creek fire. Oh no, no, um, I wasn't thinking of that. Actually. Oh really? Okay. No. Oh, interesting. I think there are just so many fires. I've had yeah. fires all around me. You know, there's just so many fires. I, I wasn't actually none of the. I don't actually. No, I mean, I wasn't even thinking of that one. Actually, huh. in fact, I might have written that part before, before that fire. I mean, fires are just everywhere. Yeah. You know? Oh, sure. Especially here. Yeah. But, um, and you live kind of in the woods, right? You live off. I grid? live um, on a, I'm rural for sure. Um, and up a two track, you know, so um, 
I'm not far from town, but um, there's no neighbors around me, which I personally like not because I'm antisocial, but because I really love the natural world. And I love to, um, I love to be, I've, you know, spent a lot of my life in the back country and that's just one of my passions. Where did so, you grow yeah. up? So I grew up in Maryland. I think the first time I came to Montana, I was two and a half because I had relatives mm. in Billings. And then in my teens, I was out here, you know, in the really backpacking and going to the parks. And then I moved here when I was maybe 20, 21, I think. Oh, okay. Um, and I've lived most of my life here. I mean, all my life, big life events have happened in Montana. Yeah. Did you go and to college I, here? I did at MSU. So you want to talk about Tom McGuane? You asked us to pair you up with him. Um, I, I assume you know him. Um, I've met him, but we aren't like. Oh, OK. Buddies. OK. <laughs> but I think I've been influenced by every book I've ever read. But the things that influence me the most are the way a writer uses language mm -hmm. and then the emotional impact of their work, you know, how they can move you with their work. And Tom McGrain, I mean, he's a master at, at language on the page yeah. and the way he puts words on the page. And, and, you know, if you read any of his work, you really there's nothing you take out and there's nothing you put in. He's mm. just he crafts it in a masterful way. So that is the first thing, the way he uses language. And then, you know, he kind of has two phases in his work. You guys picked Panama, which is in his early mm -hmm. work when, you know, which is set in like, you know, the wild drug fueled, fueled days of Key West. And then his later work, to me, it seems like it branches out more in what he covers and what he writes about. Mm -hmm. Like if you were to take Crow Fair or um, Gallatin Canyon, he writes about so many different characters and so many, but he's already, he, I think his main theme is uh, the distances between people. That's kind of what he writes about is these distances that people are always trying to cross mm -hmm. and always trying to, which you might call hyper-masculine, but that's what people call it. But I don't think it is because Annie Prue writes about that. Flannery Connor writes about that. I don't think it's a woman versus man thing mm. but but for me the the works that have moved me take um hubcaps i don't know if you've read that story but that kind of gets to the root of how people get that way where mm. they're so distant from people it's about a young boy who um he loves his turtles and he keeps them in a lunchbox and he's best friends with a developmentally disabled person and at that point you could see him being anything or going anywhere but then this one incident and a lot of tom green's work hinges on one incident this one incident this this casual cruelty just sends him in this direction where you know he's going to be distant you know for the rest of his life mm. probably and mm. um and he he actually steals hubcaps as a way his parents are just are unstable and so he steals hubcaps as a way to get order in his life you know to have control over his life and i think you know that's a masterful story and it's showing how somebody evolves from as a child maybe there was all this this possibility and yet he ends out in a situation where you know he's going to have trouble and you know he's going to be distant from people and I, and Tom McGrain you know I think he does that masterfully I think writers have obsessions that they write about mm -hmm. and for him that's that's those distances mm -hmm. and I would write about our relationship with the natural world and that's complex and fraught with all kinds of complexities too so I think these there are a number of his stories that they're understated, but they have this they do have a huge emotional impact. Now, Panama, if, since that's the one you're talking about, that I think the character in that book, he's he's in this situation where he has all all the cokey ones, all the sexy ones. You know, it's just like in this paradise in in um, in Key West. 
And yet he's totally lost. He's, yeah. he's gone off the edge. Right. And he's just searching and searching for um, something to give him meaning again. And he thinks it's Catherine, but mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's interesting that it's dedicated to Jim Harrison. And it it's always reminded me a lot of The Good Day to Die, which mm. I bet was written the same year, right around that same time. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing you haven't mentioned though in regard to McGuane is how zany and crazy. Yeah. I mean, his early work, you know, there's kind of a difference. Uh, yeah. And there's humor, but there's pathos too. There's deep pathos. Oh, for sure. I, I think he captured an era. I mean, yeah, for sure. And it, I mean, it did exist. He's not just inventing it, you know, and he was in the midst of it. You know. No, and when you read it, I mean, you don't, you would never mistake his writing for anyone else. I mean, his voice is totally distinct. Yeah. So, do you want to read uh, your one of your favorite passages? Sure. Okay, first I'll read a short passage from um, Mary, who's um, okay, the opening rancher. chapter, yeah. and she um, she's an elderly rancher who's just watching everything she knows passing away. So. They both knew there would be no more doctors or hospitals. They only made things worse. And there would be no funeral homes or undertakers. They only complicated the simplicity of death. Besides, they were drifted in for the winter and there would be no getting out until springtime. But they also both knew that since the ground was frozen, Mary would not be able to dig even a shallow grave and bury Frank alongside everyone else in the family graveyard. Her grandparents who had originally settled this Montana land, her mother and father who had worked the ranch into a tolerable living, her brother, who had always been around to help out, and their own daughter, who they had lost to a skittish horse when she was just a teenager. Her brother used to clear the roads for them once a week, barreling down the road in his plow-laden jeep, busting through snowdrifts like a raging bull, tossing the snow off to the side as easily as if he were breaking through clouds. The faster he went, the quicker everything flew out of his way. But when the drifts were really deep, it was hard to see exactly where the road was. One day he veered off the edge and hit the, a rock and flipped, and he was pinned under the weight of the jeep. By the time they got to him, he was already dead. Losing her brother so early had been hard, but until now the hardest loss had been their daughter. She was only 14 years old the day she died. Even at that young age, she had already decided she wanted to stay on the ranch. She had already picked the spot where she wanted her house to be built someday, a secluded aspen grove a mile up the road where a clear creek trickled year round and spring flowers bloomed lavishly across the hillsides. Their daughter chose that spot because she loved the bony beauty of the aspens. She loved the brilliant bluebirds that landed like sapphires on the slender gray branches. She even loved the constant wind and sculpted snowdrifts that settled deep and heavy in this, that canyon. They planned to pass on their entire 23,000 acre ranch to her and her future family when the, when the time was right, but that time never had a chance to come. I'm going to read from Lance, a pizza delivery driver. Mm. Um, yeah, I like that. I like that character a lot. <laughs> Lance left the pizza palace during the Friday rush and headed up Crazy Mountain Road with a bag full of pizzas. When he pulled into the pump pit, he saw two boys running out of the woods. The taller one was carrying Kate's old green barn coat. The boy stuck his hand deep in the pockets, his fingers fishing through the coat's innards, but he came up empty handed. He said something to the other boy and they both laughed. He tossed the coat on the pavement near the dumpster where it landed with its arms outstretched like a limp body. Lance jumped out of the car and yelled, hey, where did you get that coat? The boys glanced at each other and took off running in different directions. Lance walked to the edge of the parking lot and entered the woods where the boys had emerged. 
He moved slowly through the trees, his dread growing with each step. Finally, he glimpsed a blue tent up ahead. As he got closer, he saw long slash marks running down the side of the tent. The boys must have stabbed the tent over and over again, shredding the thin nylon fabric. Lance pictured them whooping and laughing as the knife sliced through her only protection from the elements. Kate, he called out in a shaky voice. Kate, are you okay? There was no answer. His hand trembled as he pulled back the tent flap. She wasn't in there. Lance stood still for a few minutes, listening for any sign of life in the forest around him. Then he made his way back to the pump pit. When he reached the dumpster, he looked back and saw her standing at the edge of the woods. He let out a deep sigh of relief and he picked up the crumpled coat and held it out to her. She walked over and slipped her arms into the sleeves. Even though it was a warm day, she fastened every button. He went to his car and retrieved the pineapple and ham pizza and set it down beside her. By the time he got back in his car, she was already wolfing it down like a half-starved animal. He wondered how it would feel to feed hunger that deep, how it would feel to live in constant freefall with nothing to break your descent. It was a dizzying thought. Well, well thank thanks. you very much. Thank yep. you so much. It's an odd pairing this time around. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and maybe it wouldn't be so odd if we'd gone with Crow Fair, but I'm really glad we revisited this. I am too. Panama. And it, you know, made me wonder about Jim Harrison, who we've already talked about. Yeah. We've read a book he wrote five years before this one, that mm-hmm. also set in Key West. Um, and it also, uh, at least his book in a strange way, toward the end, I guess the fire scene reminded me of Maxim Lustikov's book. Oh, I haven't read that. The Ruthie Fear one? Yeah, just, mm-hmm. you know, a, a sort of holocaustic thing mm-hmm. at the end that crystallizes the, the right. book. Yeah. We would recommend Thomas McGuane's Panama and Elise's debut novel crazy mountain yeah and i was pleased to hear her say she's working on something else that's so thanks for joining us next time we're going to talk about a really beautiful collection of poems that are paired up with uh, some amazing black and white photographs by our friend charles finn he's the poet and the um, photographer is barbara michaelman and we're going to, it's another kind of odd pairing. <laughs> um, the novel that we picked is one that I found completely at random in a thrift store in Billings here. And I uh, bought it, I think, because the inside of the flap, the dust jacket flap, said that the author was from Poplar, Montana. Mm. Um, and I actually haven't read the book yet, but you read it and said it was great. It's an amazing book, yeah. So the main character is a, is a musician. And I'm assuming this guy, Duran? Yeah. Duran? Uh, Curran. Curran. C-U-R-R-A-N. I'm assuming he Dale was a musician Curran. because the he writes about being in a band in a way that just blew my mind. He's not only the playing the, the music, but also the dynamics between band members. Uh, it's, a, it's a great book. I can't wait for you to read it. And what's the name of the book? Is it At the Bar? Or at Piano the... in the Band. Piano in the Band. Yeah. So join us again next time. Thanks again. Keep reading. Breakfast in Montana is sponsored by the Isle of Books in Bozeman and Isle of Books and Books in Butte. And we would also like to thank the Montana Arts Council for their generous grant.